Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. I'm Brad Constantine, and this discussion is going to be regarding 2 Nephi chapter 21 and Isaiah chapter 11. So let's go ahead and jump right into this one. Uh, this chapter was quoted by Moroni to Joseph Smith uh, when he visited uh, Joseph in the fall of 1823 and uh, said that this was about to be fulfilled. So there's a lot in here, and we're going to be going back and forth between uh, the Doctrine and the Covenants as well because there's some explanations in that uh, about what some of the verses mean. So let's look at uh, verse 1. And there shall come forth <clears throat> a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So this question came up uh, among the saints early on in section 113. Joseph Smith asked some questions and then received some revelation. So if you go to section 113, it says, Who is the stem of Jesse spoken of in the first, second, third, and fifth verses, fourth and fifth verses of the 11th chapter of Isaiah? Verily, thus saith the Lord, it is Christ. What is the rod spoken of in the first verse of the 11th chapter of Isaiah that should come of the stem of Jesse? Behold, thus saith the Lord, it is a servant in the hands of Christ, who is partly a descendant of Jesse as well as of Ephraim or of the house of Joseph, on whom there is much power, has laid much power. What is the, now we know that that's Joseph Smith, and we'll get into a little bit more detail about that in a little bit. What is the root of Jesse spoken of in the 10th verse of the 11th chapter? Behold, thus saith the Lord, it is a descendant of Jesse as well as of Joseph, unto whom rightly belongs the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom for an ensign and for the gathering of my people in the last days. And again, that's about Joseph Smith, which we'll talk about here in a minute. The Book of Mormon contains an important prophecy about a descendant of the ancient Joseph, who would be also named Joseph and who would do a great work of salvation among the Israelites to bring them to the knowledge of God's covenants in the last days. Joseph Smith Jr. is this Joseph. His patriarchal blessing identifies him as the heir of the prompt to the promises of Ephraim, who is the son of ancient Joseph, and he is called a pure Ephraimite by Brigham Young. There is not the same recorded evidence of Joseph Smith being a descendant of Jesse through the tribe of Judah. However, there were occasions in earlier church history when a number of the, of the brethren, including Joseph Smith, claimed that they shared lineage with Jesus in the tribe of Judah. And that was from uh, the life of Heber C. Kimball. In short, Joseph Smith fulfills the requirements as a descendant of Joseph through his son Ephraim. He was also a descendant of Judah through Jesse, and he may have been and he may have descended through the same lineage as Jesus. Brigham Young said it was decreed in the councils of eternity long before the foundations of the earth were laid that he, Joseph Smith, should be the man in the last dispensation of this world to bring forth the word of God to the people and receive the fullness of the keys and power of the priesthood of the Son of God. The Lord had his eyes upon him and upon his father and upon his father's father and upon their progenitors clear back to Abraham and from Abraham to the flood, from the flood to Enoch and from Enoch to Adam. He has watched that family and that blood as it was circulated from its fountain to the birth of that man. He, has, he was foreordained in eternity to preside over this last dispensation. 
And that was from the Discourses of Brigham Young. Elder McConkie said, Christ is the son of David, the seed of David, the inheritor through Mary, his mother, of the blood of the, king, of the great king. He is also called the stem of Jesse and the branch, meaning branch of David. Messianic prophecies under these headings deal with the power and dominion he shall wield as he sits on David's throne and have reference almost exclusively to his second sojourn on planet Earth. Jesse was the father of David. Isaiah speaks of the stem of Jesse, whom he also designates as a branch growing out of the root of that ancient worthy. He recites how the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and how he shall be, be mighty in judgment, how he shall smite the earth and slay the wicked, and how the lamb and the lion shall lie down together in that day, all of which has reference to the second coming and the millennial era thereby ushered in. As to the identity of the stem of Jesse, the revealed word says, Verily thus saith the Lord, it is Christ. This also means that the branch is Christ, as, well, as we shall now see from other related scriptures. By the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord foretells the ancient scattering and the latter-day gather, latter gathering of his chosen Israel. After they have gathered out of all countries whither I have driven them, after the kingdom has been restored to Israel as desired by the ancient apostles, uh, in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, then this eventuality, yet future and millennial in nature, shall be fulfilled. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise up David, a righteous unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. That is to say, the king who shall reign personally upon the earth during the millennium shall be the branch who grew out of the house of David. He shall execute judgment and justice in all the earth because he is Lord Jehovah, even him whom we call Christ. Through Zechariah the Lord spoke similarly, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. I will remove the iniquity of the, of the land in one day, meaning that the wicked shall be destroyed and the millennial era of peace and righteousness commence. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Of that glorious millennial day, the Lord says also, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. That the branch of David is Christ is perfectly clear. That's from the promised Messiah by Bruce R. McConkie. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding and the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So that's the way in which Jesus will govern the earth during the millennium, is with, uh, with righteousness and judgment. Joseph Fielding Smith said, In that day there shall be no divided Christianity. All who will not repent and receive the gospel shall soon be removed, and they who shall remain shall learn to worship the true and living God in spirit and in truth. The church of Jesus Christ shall have sway over all the earth, for Christ shall be the king and deliverer. Peace shall prevail over uh, both among men and among beasts. Satan shall be bound in his dominion, which he has held by usurpation and fraud since the beginning of the earth's temporal existence shall come to an end. <clears throat> the rightful king shall reign and his saints shall possess the kingdom according to the vision of Daniel. Jerusalem shall become a righteous city when Israel is gathered and redeemed. 
Zion also shall be cleansed of all iniquity, and in that day when Christ shall rule, the word of the Lord to Isaiah shall be fulfilled. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. During all these years, men dwelling in mortality will have the privilege of associating with those who have received their resurrection. Our Lord and Savior will be familiar, a familiar figure among the righteous saints. Instruction will be given by resurrected prophets. How could wickedness remain under such conditions? Those who have passed through the resurrection will not, however, dwell with those in mortality. They will not stay in earthly or human homes, nor sleep in the beds of mortals. Such a thing would be inconsistent. Joseph Smith has said, Christ and the resurrected saints will reign over the earth during the thousand years. They will not probably dwell on the earth, but will visit it when they please or when it is necessary to govern it. There will be wicked men on the earth during the thousand years. The heathen nations who will not come up to worship will be visited with the judgments of God and must eventually be destroyed from the earth. The question naturally will arise, if the wicked are to be destroyed when Christ comes, how then can there be wicked men on the earth during the millennium, as stated by Joseph Smith and Isaiah? It is quite evident that the wickedness during the time will be among those who are heathen or have not come in, uh, into the church, and their wickedness consists of failure to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men will be free from the temptations of Satan. Peace will be in the hearts of all men, and it is decreed that in time all will receive the truth. For the gospel is to cover the earth as the waters do the sea. And that was from Joseph Filling Smith. All right, back to the scriptures. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. The scriptures often make symbolic use <clears throat> of the girdle. When Jesus said to his disciples, let your loins be girded about you, it was as if he, was, he had said, be as men who have a long race to run. Gather up the folds of your flowing robes and fasten them with your girdle, that nothing may keep you back or impede your steps. So in, in other words, in Bible language, to be girded means to be ready for action. <clears throat> that was from Fred, Wright, Fred White in Manners and Customs of the Bible Lands. And faithfulness, the girdle of his reins. Christ will judge us by looking into our hearts. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and fatling. Fatling is probably not correctly translated. It should most likely be feed. They shall feed together. And a little child shall lead them. And that's again during the millennium. So let me read that again according to the new translation that I've just given you. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the kid. And the calf and the young lion shall feed together. And a little child shall lead them. That sounds a little bit better, doesn't it? Joseph Smith said, in preaching... <clears throat> in, I'm sorry, uh, in pitching my tent, we found three, three uh, rattlesnakes, which the brethren were about to kill. But I said, let them alone. Don't hurt them. How will the serpent ever lose his venom while the servants of God possess the same disposition and continue to make war upon it? Men must become harmless before the brute creation. And when men lose their vicious disposition and cease to destroy... The animal race, the lion and the lamb, can dwell together, and the suckling child can play, and the serpent in safety. The brethren took the serpents carefully on sticks and carried them across the creek. I exhorted the brethren not to kill a serpent, bird, or an animal of any kind during my journeys unless it became necessary in order to preserve ourselves from hunger. Also, Hugh Nibley said, In paradise, as everybody knows, all creatures live together in peace. So too in Zion, when it is restored to the earth... <clears throat> The lion shall lie down with the lamb. God's other creatures are an important part of the picture of heaven. A marvelous statement by Joseph Smith on this subject gives us a flash of insight into an amazing future. 
John learned that God glorified himself by saving all that his hands had made, whether beasts, fowls, fishes, or men, and he will glorify himself with them. Brigham Young said the millennium consists of this, in every heart in the church and kingdom of God being united in one. All things else will be as they are now. We shall eat, drink, and wear clothing. Let the people be holy and filled with the Spirit of God, and every animal and creeping thing will be filled with peace. The soil of the earth will bring forth in its strength, and the fruits thereof will be meat for man. So we'll be vegetarians during the millennium. We won't be eating meat anymore. So get as much steak as you can. Just kidding. Verse 7, And the cow and the bear shall feed their young their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaning and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. The cockatrice is a snake. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Joseph Fielding Smith said, The gospel will be taught far more intensely and with greater power during the millennium until all the inhabitants of the earth shall embrace it. Satan shall be bound so that he cannot tempt any man. Should any man refuse to repent and accept the gospel under those conditions, then he would be accursed. Through the revelations given to the prophets, we learn that during the reign of Jesus Christ for a thousand years, eventually all people will embrace the truth. Isaiah prophesied of the millennium as follows, and then he's, he quoted uh, the, the four verses that I just read. This chapter in Isaiah, Moroni quoted to the prophet Joseph Smith and said to him it was about to be fulfilled. If the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters do the sea, then it must be universally received. Moreover, the promise of the Lord through Jeremiah is that it will, be, it will no longer be necessary for anyone to teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. Continuing with Joseph Fielding Smith, he said, Some members of the church have an erroneous idea that when the millennium comes, all of the millions, all of the people are going to be swept off the, the earth except righteous members of the church. That is not so. There will be millions of people, Catholics, Protestants, agnostics, Mohammedans, people of all classes and of all beliefs, still permitted to remain upon the face of the earth. But they will be those who have lived clean lives, those who have been free from wickedness and corruption. All who belong by virtue of their good lives to the terrestrial order, as well as those who have kept the celestial law, will remain upon the face of the earth during the millennium. So your friends are going to be still around. So you don't have to worry about losing any of your friends that are they're living good lives, just because they're not members of the church. Eventually, however, the knowledge of the Lord will be will cover the earth as the waters do the sea. But there will be there will, but there will be need for the preaching of the gospel after the millennium is brought in until all men are either converted or pass away. In the course of the thousand years, all men will either come into the church or kingdom of God, or they will die and pass away. Elder Orson Pratt said, children will grow up without sin unto salvation as a general thing. Mortality still continues that people are subject to plagues, subject to pain, and subject to be afflicted. When Jesus has been here in person a thousand years and all the ancient saints that have been resurrected and the modern saints also, after they have lived upon the earth for the space of a thousand years, it seems that Satan is to be loosed and uh, loosed out of his prison and permitted to go forth and tempt. Whom will he tempt? Those that are yet mortal, the innumerable inhabitants of the earth. He will tempt them. He will go out into the four quarters of the earth and gather together all that he can overcome. Satan will gather up his hosts that have apostatized from the truth, and he will marshal them round about the city, and fire will descend from God out of heaven and devour that portion of the army of Satan. 
that is still mortal. They will be consumed the same as the wicked will have been consumed over a thousand years before that at the Savior's second coming. Uh, back to the scriptures, verse 10. And in that day, again, he's talking about our day. There shall be a root of Jesse, and he's talking here about Joseph Smith, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And then again, back to uh, section 113. Uh, the root of Jesse spoken of is interpreted in DNC 113 verse 6 as follows. It is a descendant of Jesse as well as of Joseph, unto whom rightly belongs the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom for an ensign and for the gathering of my people in the last days. This individual must be Joseph Smith. He is also spoken of as the rod in verse 1. Quite obviously, the root of Jesse is a man, a descendant of Jesse and Joseph, as the Lord explains, who seems to have a great mission to perform in connection with gathering the remnant of Israel, as explained in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 to 16. I suggest that the rod of verse 1 and the root of Jesse of verse 10 refer to the same man, Joseph Smith. If the rod in section 113 is the servant of the hand of, in the hand of Christ, who is partly a descendant of Jesse as well as of Ephraim, or of the house of Joseph, note that in verse 6, he seems to be more closely defined as a descendant of Jesse as well as of Joseph, unto whom rightly belongs the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom for an ensign, and for the gathering of my people in the last days. Just a side note, having been a descendant of both Judah and Ephraim, makes Joseph both... Um, have a right to the priesthood through Ephraim and the right to the kingship um, under Judah. And so Joseph Smith would be both the high priest and the king, just like Melchizedek was the, the high priest and the king. And so Joseph Smith is also rightly the high priest and the king over the kingdom of God on the earth. And so, um, and so he, he had that right by lineage. Continuing, who better fits the description of the words in italics that Joseph Smith, um, of Joseph Smith, he rightly holds the priesthood and its keys by lineage, and surely no one disputes the fact that the keys of the gathering of my people were conferred on him by Moses in the Kirtland Temple. A careful reading of Romans 15:12 reveals that Paul refers to this Isaiah passage as having reference to Christ, not Joseph Smith. This is natural because many of the early apostles thought that the term last days referred to the time period in which they were living. Dr. Sperry has suggested that Paul was not correct in using this scripture to refer to Christ. Demonstrates that Paul was closely following the Septuagint, the Greek translation, rather than the Hebrew. As a matter of fact, the Septuagint version is only a paraphrase of the original Hebrew. We notice that the Greek version of Isaiah 11.1 1 translates the Hebrew text stem of Jesse as the root of Jesse and uses the same phrase in Isaiah 11.10. Of interest is the fact that the Greek word riza or root is used in both verses to translate different Hebrew words. Paul would be quick to discern that the root of Jesse of the Septuagint text of Isaiah was the Christ. And when he observed that the phrase root of Jesse was used again in verse 10, he would naturally assume that it too had reference to the Christ. Hence the reason for his quotation in uh, Romans 15, 12. Who then is the root of Jesse? It appears that the, root, that the prophet Joseph Smith is both the rod and the root that will come from Jesse. He is the one upon whom the keys of the kingdom were bestowed, including the keys of the gathering of Israel. However, Victor Ludlow suggested that Joseph Smith might not be the only root 
of Jesse in, in these last days. Many presidents of the church have been related to him by blood, and all have held the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom that he held. The root of Jesse could also be that particular prophet who will hold the keys when Christ returns to preside personally over his kingdom. The term could even represent the office of the president of the church. In any case, the root of Jesse designates a great leader in the church of Jesus Christ in this dispensation. I, my personal belief is that, that that has reference to Joseph Smith and only Joseph Smith. Verse 11, and it shall come to pass in that day, meaning the last days, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamrath and from the islands of the sea. So he's just telling us here that they're going to be, that the remnants of Israel will be from all nations. Uh, Joseph Smith said, the time has at last arrived when the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob... <clears throat> has set his hand again the second time to recover the remnants of his people, which have been left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and so on, and with them to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles and establish that covenant with them, which was promised when their sin should be taken away. This covenant has never been established with the house of Israel, nor with the house of Judah, for it requires two parties to make a covenant, and those two parties must be agreed, or no covenant can be made. Christ, in the days of his flesh, proposed to make a covenant with them, but they rejected him and his proposals, and in consequence thereof they were broken off, and no covenant was made with them at that time. Thus, after this chosen family had rejected Christ and his proposals, the heralds of salvation said to them, Lo, we turn unto the Gentiles. And the Gentiles received the covenant and were grafted in from whence the chosen family were broken off. Wilford Woodruff, Isaiah's soul, seemed to be on fire, and his mind wrapped in the visions of the Almighty, while he declared in the name of the Lord that it should come to pass in the last days that God should set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, assemble the outcasts of Israel, gather together the dispersed of Judah, destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and make men go over dry shod, gather, to them, gather them to, is, to Jerusalem on horses, mules, swift beasts, and in chariots, and rebuild Jerusalem upon her own heaps, while at the same time the destroyer of the Gentiles will be on his way, and while God was turning the captivity of Israel, he would put all their curses and afflictions upon the heads of the Gentiles, their enemies, who had not sought to recover but to destroy them, and had trodden them underfoot from generations to generation. At the same time, the standard should be lifted up that the honest in heart, the meek of the earth among the Gentiles, should seek unto it, and that Zion should be redeemed, and be built up a holy city, that the, that the glory and power of God should rest upon her, and be seen upon her, that the watchmen upon Mount Ephraim might cry, Arise ye, and let us go up to unto Zion, the city of the Lord our God, that the Gentiles might come to, to her light, and kings to the brightness of her rising, that the saints of God may have a place to flee to, and stand in holy places, while judgment works in the earth, that when the sword of God that is bathed in heaven falls upon Idumea, or the world, when the Lord pleads with all flesh by sword and by fire, and the slain of the Lord are many, the saints may escape these calamities by fleeing to the places of refuge like Lot and Noah. Back to verse 12. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. President Hinckley said, Rising above the Salt Lake Valley is a dome-shaped peak. Brigham Young saw it in vision before the saints left Nauvoo. He saw an ensign descend upon the hill and heard the voice of Joseph Smith say, Build under that point, and you will prosper and have peace. When Brigham Young first arrived in the valley, he immediately recognized the peak. 
On the morning of July 26, 1847, the men who would eventually comprise the new first presidency, along with several members of the Twelve, climbed its slopes. This small group of priesthood leaders gazed out upon the valley below. This is where we will plant the soles of our feet, President Young said. And when the Lord will place his name amongst this people, as I now stand at Ensign Peak and see the valley below, I marvel at the foresight of that little group. These prophets, dressed in old uh, travel-worn clothes, standing in boots that had worn for more than a thousand miles, spoke of a millennial vision. It was both old and audacious. It was almost unbelievable. Here they were, almost a thousand miles from the nearest settlement to the east and almost 800 miles from the Pacific coast. They were in an untried climate. They had never raised a crop here. They had not built a sepulcher. I'm sorry, they had not built a structure of any kind. They were exiles, driven from their fair city, on the Mississippi into this desert region of the West, but they were possessed of a vision drawn from the scriptures and words of revelation. And that was from President Hinckley. Continuing, uh, verse 13, the envy of Ephraim shall also depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. And so the two, the two tribes will not be fighting against each other anymore. The Grand Richard said, We are from Ephraim. The Lord expects us, since we are the custodians of his gospel, as restored in these latter days, according to, any, according to my understanding, to extend the hand of friendship to Judah, because, after all, we are all descendants of the prophets Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we come under the promises that through their descendants shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I do not know how the enmity and envy between Ephraim and Judah can disappear, except that we of the house of Ephraim, who have the custody of the gospel, should lead out in trying to bring to this branch of the house of Israel the blessings of the restored gospel. And it seems to me that the only way that the tribe of Judah can be sanctified to dwell in his presence forever and ever will be when we bring to them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Savior promised them it would be brought in the latter days. Verse 14, but they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. 700 years before the birth of the Savior, the prophet Isaiah, looking down the vista of time, saw the latter-day gathering of the scattered house of Israel and said concerning them, they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. We recognize the fulfillment of that prophecy in the founding of this church by Joseph Smith, a lineal descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who thus lifted the ensign for the gathering of their descendants from their long dispersion among the nations. But a part of the fulfillment rests with the Gentiles. Their steamships, their railroads, their means of rapid transit and communication, these are the shoulders of the Philistines upon which the children of Ephraim have been and are being brought to the west, to the land of Zion, where the new Jerusalem is to rise, where the pure in heart will assemble and the necessary preparation be made. For the coming of the Lord and his glory, God works outside as well as inside his church and uses big things and little things for the accomplishment of his purposes. And that was from Orson F. Whitney. 15. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue, or this could be referred to as gulf, that's another translation, of the Egyptian sea. And with his mighty wind, he shall shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make men go over dry shod. Sounds like the delta of the Nile will be dried up at one point and there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt so this chapter is very much uh, uh, concerned with the gathering of Israel in the last days and especially the coming forth of the gospel and the kingdom of God on earth and you can tell from from Isaiah that uh, he's talking a lot about Joseph Smith 
and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Of this I bear testimony. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.